Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in Science, Technology and Society podcast. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking with Jessica Martucci about her new book, Back to the Breast, Natural Motherhood and Breastfeeding in America. This came out in 2015 with the University of Chicago Press. Now, this is a super timely and really, really interesting book on all kinds of levels and for all kinds of reasons. What it does is it gives us a really robust historical account of the nature and transformations of the history of breastfeeding, practices, discourses, and implications of both of those in the 20th and the 21st centuries. And one of the many, many kinds of interesting work that uh, Martucci does in this study is to bring out as a really, really central, as really the central um, uh, part of the source material of the book, or at least one of the central parts of the source material, the voices of women at all levels in producing and shaping this discourse. And so we're going to hear from mothers, from nurses, from doctors, from all kinds of people who were um, in in different ways and um, in sort of different contexts helping to shape the history of breastfeeding and its transformations. So you'll hear um, in the course of the interview not only about um, the stories themselves, and there are so many fascinating stories and really, really interesting materials that are in the book that we didn't have a chance to get to. Um, So I really highly recommend um, trying to get your hands on a copy of the book and working through it because it's a great read as well as being full of fascinating stuff. But the book also touches on um, and takes on some really important historiographical approaches and weaves them into its mode of storytelling. So you'll see um, very strong influences of environmental historians. You'll see strong influences um, from historians of science, historians of medicine, um, social historians. There's some really, really cool work here um, that also asks us to question or to at least problematize some notions that have been central to critical debates in STS, like nature, natural, um, also like choice um, and the kind of political and social and historical ramifications of not being critical enough about discourses of choice. So it's super interesting, really important. It was really great to talk with Jessica about it. I had a great time with this one and I really enjoyed it. And I hope you do as well. And as ever, thanks very much for listening and for your support of the channel. I'm here today to talk with Jessica Martucci about her new book, Back to the Breast. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Jessica, thanks for writing an awesome book, uh, making time to talk with me about it, and being here today. Welcome to the channel. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, Jessica, let's start, as is traditional for the channel, by talking a little bit about how you came to the field. What brought you to the history of science, technology, and medicine? Well, I think... uh... 
Uh, probably a rather common experience. Um, you know, I was an undergraduate and I was actually a science major. I was majoring in biology and environmental studies and um, had the opportunity to take a couple of classes um, in environmental history and in actually like medieval European history. Mm. Um, And through those classes just kind of started to develop an interest in history. Um, And then I also had the opportunity to take a very interesting class on uh, the the sort of role of illness and sickness in the lives of medieval visionary women. Mm. And that sort of opened my eyes to this concept of thinking about the body and illness as something that was a historically changing process that you could sort of actually look at that um, experience of illness changing over time. And I just uh, became enthralled with that and knew before I was finishing my bachelor's that I was going to go back um, and get my PhD in, in the history of medicine. Wow. So the book that we're talking about today doesn't focus on medieval bodies, but rather traces the emergence, the rise, and the continued practice of breastfeeding in the 20th and the 21st centuries. It looks at the lives and the work of scientists, of nurses, medical researchers, lay groups, doctors, and mothers to understand the shifting meanings of breastfeeding since the 1930s. Super fascinating. How did you come to this topic? Um, Well, interestingly enough, um, I came to it again through through some coursework as a again as a graduate student this time. um, I was um, I knew I wanted to do something in the history of medicine. I'd kind of decided that I was interested in doing 20th century U.S. and I was certainly interested in doing something involving gender um, and and women's experiences. Um, So I was taking a folklore class at the time on complementary and alternative medicine. Um, And it was just a really interesting class because, again, it sort of gets you to think about health and healing practices as things that are very culturally situated. Um, And we actually read an article um, that the professor had written in that class that sort of used breastfeeding as an example of an alternative medicine. And the idea just kind of struck me as very interesting. Um, I had not really ever thought about breastfeeding as at all, really, (laughs) um, as a, as a 20 something who didn't have children at the time. Um, and, I decided to just sort of look more into what the history of breastfeeding was um, and started reading um, books by authors like Rima Apple and Jacqueline Wolf and um, Janet Golden and just became really, really interested in the idea that breastfeeding had a history that it had always, that it had not always sort of been the way that it is now. Um, and so I just kind of went with it from there. So this started out as a dissertation project, is that right? That's correct. So can you talk about the transition from that stage of the project to the book? From dissertation to book, were there any minor or major transformations in how you were conceptualizing or structuring the project? I think that the major sort of 
conceptualizing portion of the work. Um, I, I, I at least like to think that I had done most of that um, in the dissertation phase. I think certainly, you know, my arguments and my ideas about um, what I'm sure we'll get to later, but this idea of the ideology of natural motherhood, that took a long time to really pin down um, in in the book. I don't think I was quite there um, in the dissertation. Um, and then, you know, there were there were additional chapters that I that I researched. Um, I did a, I did a fair amount of additional research to write the book um, that I hadn't been able to do for the dissertation. So there's a there's a whole new chapter um, in the book that didn't appear at all in the dissertation um, that really looks at the the breast pump. And there's a a whole new sort of take on um, the role of physicians in the breastfeeding story that I've looked at in the book that I never really got to um, do adequately, I think, in the dissertation. So in terms of like my process, um, it was really like honing my overall kind of narrative and and argument um, and also adding these like additional components through more research and, and new chapters. Great. So let's dive right in. Uh, What I'll do is I'll just say um, a little bit at the outset right now, just to kind of situate us um, within the first chapter, and then I'll open it up and ask you to talk a little bit about it. So chapter one looks at, um, in the words of the book, the history of the emergence of natural motherhood in the sciences, P-S-Y, E-N-C-E-S, in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s. It explores how the human sciences and the biological sciences help to construct this ideology of natural motherhood by studying the interactions between mothers and infants across various boundaries of difference, as you call them in the book, human-animal boundaries, cultural boundaries, disciplinary boundaries, and national boundaries. Now, this ideology of natural motherhood becomes important, as you tell us in this chapter, um, insofar as it helped redefine the meaning of breastfeeding for mothers in the second half of the 20th century. It was really important. And the chapter traces competing ideologies of both natural and of scientific motherhood. Natural motherhood, as you tell us here, relies on a model of embodied maternal knowledge, versus scientific motherhood's reliance on the external knowledge, in the words of the book, and technologies of scientific experts. Okay, so that's kind of where we are in the context of the first chapter. And the first chapter traces the work of a lot of really fascinating people who we could easily talk about just solely for the next hour, right? So we won't be able to do that, but I'll just kind of drop some names and take us into one of them. Um, you talk about John B. Watson's theories of behaviorism, the work of Anna Freud, um, among others, and focus in, in a really fascinating part of the chapter, on the work of Margaret Mead and the work of Columbia University-trained psychologist Niles Rumley-Newton. Now, they helped unite biological and ethological theories of mother-infant attachment, as you tell us here, with a sort of Victorian sense of maternal authority and purpose. So let's talk about Newton. Now, Newton's work in particular was pivotal in uh, what you call here spurring an early American back-to-the-breast movement. 
Now, since fewer listeners will be familiar with her work than with some of the others, um, let's open this up. And can you talk about the importance of her work? Um, for you, what's most important for us to understand about Newton's work and its implications and after effects? Yeah, well, I have to say um, discovering Niles Newton was one of the sort of joys of doing this research. Um, she, as far as I've found, you know, doesn't really turn up anywhere else in the history of science or medicine. Um, and it was just a, a real pleasure to discover her and discover her work and to see, like you said, um, just how important she was to what breastfeeding was going to become in the second half of the 20th century. So Niles Newton, um, she's this fascinating character. She you know, is getting her PhD um, in psychology in a time when, you know, it's still, it's quite, you know, atypical for a woman to be getting a PhD at all. Um, And she's at Columbia um, and she has interests in psychology of motherhood um, from the sort of get-go. And while she's at Columbia, she takes a class with Margaret Mead, and she becomes really interested in this idea about how biology and psychology and emotion can be wrapped up in culture. Um, and how do culture and biology interact in these particular um, environments around motherhood? So especially pregnancy, childbirth, um, breastfeeding, child rearing. Um, and so she, I mean, she spends her life really engaged in kind of bringing together all of the strands of research that are going on in the mid 20th century around mothering and motherhood, you know, biological, um, clinical research. Um, She ends up uh, marrying uh, Michael Newton, who is an obstetrician, gynecologist, um, and they do work together. um, And given the sort of era in which she's uh, writing and working, you know, certainly seems that her partnership with Michael Newton helps get her work into fairly good journals like pediatrics um, and places like that. But she's she's really interested in bringing the the disparate strands of the science of motherhood um, in that period all together, um, and she really sees them coming together in breastfeeding. Um, so she's a really fascinating figure, and her work connects things that are going on in terms of hormone hormone research and the impact of hormones on sort of emotional and physiological states. Um, there's a there's a story that I relate in the book that has always been one of my favorites where um, Niles and her husband want to take some of the research that's been going on in the dairy sciences that looks at connections between um, hormones and the letdown reflex in, in dairy cows or the, the process by which milk is actually released um, from the udders. And they want to see if that same kind of hormonal pathway operates in human mothers. 
So they state they take Niles, who at the time is a young mother herself and is breastfeeding one of her children. Um, and they subject her to all of these kind of stressors. They ask her to do uh, complex math problems <laughs> um, and they plunge her feet into cold ice water um, while she's trying to breastfeed. And she discovers that, you know, those stressors actually just stop her flow of milk. Um, and then they inject her with a form of oxytocin and she's able to breastfeed again, regardless of, of the stressors. So they're doing some really interesting um, small scale research um, that's bringing together ideas about mind, body, um, and the influence of the environment on maternal experiences and processes in a way that's really interesting and ends up being very, being connected to very practical advice for breastfeeding mothers. So, you know, the experiment where you're testing external stressors on milk flow ends up being really useful thing to know for a mother who is worried that her milk is dried up. Um, when in fact, maybe all she needs to do is sort of sit down and calm down and relax, um, in order to get her milk to start flowing. So she's, she's also one of the, um, originators of the idea that you should sit down and sort of have a drink, uh, <laughs> before you breastfeed because it relax, because of its relaxing effects. <laughs> so this is, there's so many other things we can talk about in that chapter, but, um, but moving on, we move on to another fascinating chapter. Chapter two looks at, um, in the words of the book, the persistence of an interest in breastfeeding within the medical world from the early 20th century through the 1960s. Now, this chapter focuses on the work of physicians, of doctors, who supported breastfeeding in the age of the bottle, and it moves beyond existing historiographical accounts. Now, the chapter shows, among other things, that even the few who studied and who advocated breastfeeding, these are the physicians, again, in the words of the book, often failed to manage it successfully in their own practices. It's a really, really complicated landscape here that you're bringing us into. Now, the, one of the things um, that you mention here explicitly in the chapter, and this is what I'd like to ask you to talk a little bit about, is that the answer to the question, was medical advice for or against breastfeeding in the post-war decades, is not at all straightforward to answer. So as a way of bringing us into um, this chapter, can you talk about that um, in terms of um, engaging, if not answering this question, for you, what's particularly important about understanding the landscape of doctors um, and their advice and practices with respect to breastfeeding in this part of the book? Sure. Well, I think it's interesting because if you ask like a, a contemporary pediatrician, if doctors were ever against breastfeeding, they would, they would say, no, absolutely not. That's ridiculous. Um, and in fact, I have asked contemporary pediatricians that question, and that is the general response that I get, one of sort of disbelief um, that that could ever be the case. And then if you sort of go to the literature and the history of medicine, it sounds very much like there were, you know, there was no medical interest in breastfeeding in the mid 20th century. Doctors didn't care. They didn't they weren't interested in helping mothers, um, and there's a there's almost a kind of adversarial relationship set up in that in that narrative between mothers and doctors. And so, I knew from 
just reading into the, the history of La Leche League, um, which is an organization that was founded in 1956 outside of Chicago um, to support and advocate and help women breastfeed. Um, and several of those women who founded that group were either married to or close friends with doctors, um, obstetricians and pediatricians and general practitioners. Um, and so I had, I sort of had this idea that there must have been doctors that were helping. Um, even if there weren't that many of them, there had to have been some. Um, and so I kind of started with La Leche League and the people who they invited to be on their medical advisory board. Um, and so that brings into the picture people like Gregory White, who was the husband of uh, Mary White, I believe, who was one of, again, one of the founders of La Leche League. Um, it brings into the picture people like uh, Dr. Herbert Ratner, who is another interesting figure um, that probably deserves a book in his own right. Um, and so from there, I just kind of looked uh, into the literature for where are where is there evidence that there were a handful of doctors helping these women? And they show up in women's letters and and correspondence um, as well. Stories, anecdotal stories that women would exchange about, you know, finding a doctor that helped them. Um, so I knew that they had to be there. And I thought that it was important to show that they were there Um and also to kind of examine, well, if they were there, then why didn't things get better? Um, why didn't it get easier? And so that sort of brought me into this world where I'm, I'm looking at uh, what is actually available in the medical literature in the 1940s, 50s, 60s about scientific arguments in favor of breastfeeding um, and there aren't that many is what the sort of short story is. Um, so basically doctors who maybe had a lot of personal experience seeing success with breastfeeding or at least, um, you know, hearing stories from their patients about the benefits of breastfeeding, if they wanted to sort of back that up and, and fight the good fight, professionally, they would have been hard pressed to do so in that period because there was so little evidence, um, so little focus was being put on studying breastfeeding in the first place. And this was growing out of this kind of long standing or, or this long sort of slow rise maybe in, in a belief in scientific formula and the ability of science to really kind of understand enough about infant feeding to provide an alternative source um, that was just as nutritious and raised babies that grew well and grew up to adulthood. Um, and some of the lingering concerns about formula by the 1950s were, were really kind of being conquered. So some of the longest standing concerns about formula feeding versus breastfeeding at that time were the rates of infection, gastrointestinal infection, which would have tended to come from, you know, improperly sterilizing formulas or cow's milk based foods. Um, and by, you know, post 
post-World War II era, they feel confident enough in their abilities to both prevent infection and to treat it um, as antibiotics have come on the scene. Um, they basically feel that, you know, there's enough preventative medicine and enough reactive medicine out there by the 1950s that, that they don't really need to worry that much about breastfeeding anymore. And, and they decide, you know, on the whole as a profession, you know, this is really, um, a lot of work. Uh, it's not easy and it's a lot easier for us to sort of tell women to, to just use a bottle and the doctors who sort of advocate for breastfeeding, um, they kind of become more and more pushed into the minority. Um, and yeah. Mm -hmm. This story becomes really, really interesting in all kinds of ways. Um, and the chapter shows lots of things that we won't have time to get into in detail, but I just want to sketch, um, a kind of overview for listeners. Now you show here that in the 1950s, Uh, the number of breastfeeding women had dropped, but a new kind of breastfeeding mother emerged in the midst of that decline. And by the 1960s, it had become clear that this ideology of scientific motherhood, and and, um, we've talked a little bit about that, had failed um, to successfully incorporate breastfeeding into that discourse and series of practices. And so there's a really interesting, um, uh, really tension there that emerges by the end of this chapter. Now, this brings us into a focus from that chapter beyond um, on the breastfeeding mother, on the breastfeeding mother um, as really the focus of the story and an important voice in this story. And this is what um, chapter three and to some extent chapter four really bring us into. So chapter three and chapter four look at the role that women, both as mothers and also as nurses and sometimes as nurses who were also mothers, played in the history of breastfeeding survival, in the words of the book, throughout the mid-century. Chapter three looks at the culture of breastfeeding mothers in these post-war years, and it focuses especially on the period from 1945 to 1963. Now, it seeks to understand, um, among other things, to what extent this ideology of natural motherhood, and we'll talk more about this, permeated popular discourse and also influenced mothers' own experiences and decisions with regard to breastfeeding. Now, the chapter, um, kind of one of the really interesting points that the chapter raises, at least um, for me as a reader, is it shows us this discourse of breastfeeding guilt and failure. Here, women themselves bore the brunt of the responsibility for breastfeeding failure or success. Now, this is going to become really important um, to the story, and it's something we're going to return to later on, insofar as you return us in the epilogue um, to the importance of really questioning and challenging this idea of choice right? Responsibility and choice. So because this seems to be here laying this foundation for a really important point um, that I think the book is making, can you talk about the importance of this, of this kind of discourse of guilt and failure, of the responsibility that was placed on women for the success or the failure of breastfeeding and for uh, the larger implications of this for the argument that the book is making? Sure. So the... When I, when I sort of set out to write this chapter, um, I thought it was really important that I had all of this evidence that women were expressing so much guilt and worry and 
concern about breastfeeding and failing to breastfeed. Um, because A, uh, what this helps demonstrate is that there was a large enough sort of contingent of women who were interested in breastfeeding in this period, which is in and of itself something that I wanted to make sure I could demonstrate. Um, but it also shows that, as you said, you know, women sort of bore the brunt of the responsibility for getting this done. Um, and so this, this ties in again to um, something that maybe I didn't get into enough in the previous chapter, but this idea that breastfeeding, um, as it started to reemerge in the 1950s, 60s, um, was part of this ideology of natural motherhood, this idea that it was an embodied kind of knowledge, that it resisted um, scientific and technological intervention, and that really when subjected to modern medical institutions and procedures, it faltered. Um, and so when women wanted to breastfeed in this era, they knew going into it that they were facing an uphill battle. Um, and these were women who had the means and the sophistication to seek out information that they needed to um, to understand breastfeeding, to understand how to do it, at least, you know, in theory, and to understand how to kind of combat some of the institutional hurdles that were in their way, especially in the hospital. Um, but that they were that they were very concerned about breastfeeding, that they wanted to do it. Um, and when they found that the obstacles confronting them became too great, and they would resort to bottle feeding um, kind of against their wishes, they would feel immense sadness and loss about that process. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the um, kind of uh, issues that also comes up here that's bound up with all the things you just talked about is the way that um, breastfeeding and the sense of responsibility and all the issues that surround this play, were related to understanding women and the family um, in this context. Now, you mentioned here in this chapter that breastfeeding for these women could be very difficult in these years because the practice challenged both the medical system, um, as you just mentioned, but also the kind of order, um, in the words of the book, of the post-war family. How, yeah. So can you talk about that? Sure. Well, one of the things that, um, again, one of the sort of things that I liked finding and in the course of doing this research um, was the extent to which the women who chose breastfeeding and struggled to make it work in this era really showed an immense amount of self-awareness about what their choice meant. Um, and, you know, they revealed this in, you know, writing into magazines uh, women's magazines and in letters that they were writing to La Leche League and things like that, um, that they understood that what they were doing was not the norm. Um, and they understood that it had implications for not just, you know, society at large, but for their own families. Um, and something that, that women in La Leche League in particular spent a lot of time talking about was, 
you know, what is, what does a breastfeeding family look like and how is it different um, at that time from a bottle feeding family? Um, And one of the things that I talk about in that chapter is this sort of expansion in the post-war period of demands on fathers in the domestic world, um, a growing expectation that fathers had a role to play in the lives of their young children, um, that they needed to be parents, not just breadwinners. Um, And when you see debates in this period between the breast and the bottle um, decision, the father is often kind of brought into that conversation. And so for bottle feeding families, a lot of the benefits that became articulated in that period were that fathers could breast fathers could bottle feed um, their babies and share in the bond that was, you know, ostensibly developing during the feeding process. Um, And that this was good for fathers, that it helped, you know, unburdened mothers who didn't have to shoulder the sole responsibility for feeding their infants anymore. Um, And that this kind of led to this more sort of equal democratic, you know, vision of the family. And women who were breastfeeding were really pushing against that. Um, And I talk about how in those same years, uh, you know, the the female role um, as sort of the housewife was was becoming very dominant. Um, What it meant to be a housewife meant a lot of different things. Um, tied up with ideas about consumerism and uh, using household technologies to keep the house, you know, spotless um, and being, you know, sexually available and active um, in their marriages. Um, and, And being a mother was kind of part of that, but it wasn't the central component. And women who were interested in breastfeeding in this period were really pushing back against that. Um, They were articulating a model of the family in which mothering mothering was the most important job that a woman had to do um, in the family, that the needs of the infant should always come before any needs of a spouse Um, And that women should have sort of complete and total authority over that infant and have a sort of um, exclusive relationship with that infant that could only come through breastfeeding. Um, And so they were really kind of vying for complete and total control over that early infant parent relationship um, and pushing against this idea of a more active um, role for fathers in early child rearing. Now, this concern with authority and power and empowerment also comes up in really interesting ways in the next chapter. Chapter four focuses on the roles that nurses played in the history of breastfeeding through the post-war decades. Now, nurses, as you tell us here, are often overlooked um, in the historiography, but they played central roles for postpartum mothers. In this period, hospitals, um, again, as you tell us here in the chapter, remained largely indifferent to breastfeeding, and it gave nurses space to create their own authority in guiding postpartum mothers. The chapter shows that some of these nurses actually used this space um, as a space for cultivating a new role for themselves as authorities, um, as motherhood experts. 
Now, can you explain to kind of bring us into this for you? What are some of the most significant ways that nurses are shaping the story in this part of the book? Well, I when I set out again to sort of think about this project as a whole, it made sense given what I was seeing in women's stories to focus in on the nurse. Um, as I write in that chapter, even though nurses haven't been given sort of the center stage in the history of, of infant feeding, um, they, they really ought to be there because they are the first sort of gatekeepers um, to a woman's decision to breastfeed. Um, they are the ones who are bringing the infant to the mother in the hospital. They are the ones who are there, you know, physically present um, at the first feeding. Um, and they are the ones who are in charge of what's happening to that infant when it's not in its mother's arms while they're in the hospital. Um, and so they hold a tremendous amount of power over this particular relationship and over this particular choice for women. Um, and, you know, what I've, what I found is, again, you know, mothers who are going into these situations were incredibly savvy about the degree to which their nurses were going to be the the gatekeepers. Um, and there were different strategies for how mothers might try to deal with their nurses. Um, again, La Leche League, uh, their, their big best-selling, um, breastfeeding advice book, the womanly art of breastfeeding, um, had some advice in it for, you know, what should you do in order to prepare to deal with the nursing staff at your hospital? Because you can kind of assume that they may not be helpful. <laughs> um, and so, you know, mothers would, would try in the best case scenarios, they could maybe get standing order or get orders from their doctor um, to help lend some authority and legitimacy to their, their choice to breastfeed. Um, but regardless of all of that, I mean, nurses were the ones who were deciding in the moment, you know, is this baby going to get a bottle? with formula in it, with sugar water in it? Um, am I going to bring this baby to its mother every three hours to help facilitate breastfeeding? Or am I going to keep her on the same schedule as all the bottle feeding babies? Um, so they held an incredible amount of, of power in terms of how a woman's breastfeeding choice panned out, at least while she was in the hospital. Um, and you see a kind of general or sort of gradual shift over the 60s and into the 70s um, where nurses do start to become more um, breastfeeding aware. But as I chronicle in that chapter throughout that period, there's a general kind of lack of exposure to breastfeeding to nurses when they're in training um, and they're, training tends to, again, focus on this more sort of scientific interventionist way of thinking, this ideology of scientific motherhood um, that doesn't really lend itself to breastfeeding success. And so what I, one of the things that I think is interesting that comes out of that chapter is that 
you know, I do have stories from nurses in there who, who actually breastfeed their own infants and who think it's wonderful. Um, and some of them take that experience and they translate it into trying to help others um, do the same thing that they did. Um, and some of them say, you know, it's just not, it's just not feasible. It doesn't fit within the institutional confines of the hospital. And it's just not something that I can see implementing on a large scale, um, which I think is, is telling um, when you have nurses who want to help people breastfeed saying, you know, we just don't think this is possible. Um, so I think the nursing chapter is kind of key to showing um, that difference between sort of scientific training and experience knowledge when it comes to breastfeeding, um, as well as kind of demonstrating the, the institutional constraints and inertia that were just so stacked against breastfeeding um, that nurses were, you know, inevitably a part of. So as we move into the next couple of chapters of the book, we move into chapter five and six, and these look closely at, in the words of the book, the experiences of mothers, of lay groups and medical professionals from the mid-20th century through the 1990s when breastfeeding was established as a central component of a global public health message. Chapter 5 focuses on women who came of age in the 1950s and 1970s, and it considers the ways, um, uh, among uh, other things, that parallels and clashes, again in the words of the book, between the breastfeeding movement and environmentalism and feminism polarize the breastfeeding community. Now, this is a particularly fascinating chapter for all kinds of reasons, and I just want to point to one of the ways that that's the case um, that really, I think, ties into a kind of work that the whole book is doing that's really, really important. Now, we've already talked about um, the ways that the book is asking us to think about some key terms here um, and then the ways that those key terms are really powerful and, and, and deserve some critical um, encounter in, the, in this context. Um, we've talked about authority, which for me is a, is a key term in this book. Um, we've talked about, and we'll get back to um, by the end of the conversation, the idea of choice, um, which is also a really key term. And here, the chapter really emphasizes the um, polyvalence and the transformations in the idea of nature and what was natural. So this idea of um, a kind of natural motherhood um, is not something that we can take for granted. And one of the things that this chapter is showing is that even notions of what was natural, um, how to think about that term, what fell into that, to what extent mother's milk was natural, um, were very much um, contested in this period. So this chapter looks at intersections between the breastfeeding movement and ideas of nature and what is natural. Maria, Jessica, can you talk about what you take to be some of the most important ways that these notions of nature and natural are coming into play at this part of the story? Sure. I mean, the one of the things that I do in this chapter is to sort of look at the rise of the environmental movement, um, and I place women and mothers sort of in the very beginnings of that. Um, and to sort of say, you know, if we take, for example, Rachel Carson, um, whose Silent Spring book is often cited as kind of the beginning of, of the modern environmental movement, 
um, much of the evidence that she brings to bear in that book kind of focuses on how the chemical pollutants that are entering the environment are sort of going into people's bodies um, and infiltrating people's homes. Um, and, and she uses a lot of language that sort of is a kind of call to arms to, to women and mothers, especially as kind of the, the protectors and the authorities of the domestic world at that time. Um, and especially, you know, citing evidence about contamination of, of milk and food supplies that, that are obviously going to be of concern for children. Um, and so children's health is kind of brought to bear early on. Um, and so there's this way in which women and mothers are kind of s- still coming to terms with um, this idea of breastfeeding and natural motherhood. Um, and then, you know, in the er- as early as the, as the early 1960s, you have these, this rising awareness that the environment and nature is kind of under siege and is being polluted. Um, and so I kind of highlight that there's this tension um, between obviously being very concerned about pollutants and toxins getting into people's bodies um, and especially into breast milk. Um, But there's also this kind of indignation and this defensiveness that, you know, well, just because it's polluted doesn't mean that it doesn't have value. Um, It doesn't sort of diminish the fact that it's still nature, that it's still the natural and that it still has uh, something that, uh, that has something to offer. Um, and so, you know, I think one of, again, one of my favorite finds in, in this chapter was the fact that La Leche League was involved in the first Earth Day celebration. Um, and they weren't there necessarily promoting um, the typical agenda. They were there with buttons and banners and signs saying breast milk is still the best milk um, because they felt like, they needed to um, sort of protect breast milk's name um, in a time when people were really starting to discover that our bodies were filled with these chemical pollutants. Um, And so this kind of puts this natural motherhood ideology into this, this new context where um, we're not just talking about nature in terms of maternal instinct. We're really starting to talk about nature as this larger concept of something that is pure, something that has an, a sort of innate value and something that is kind of uniquely feminine and female um, and sort of wrapping breast milk up into these debates about polluted environments really like brings that to the forefront. Um, and it sort of forces um, these environmental issues into, into mother's laps, whether they sort of want them there or not. Right. And there's a whole other um, component of the chapter that I'll just mark 
um, rather than getting uh, into it in too much detail, just um, purely for the sake of time. There are also, or there were also, arguments over whether this ideology of natural motherhood could fit within a feminist framework. And the chapter talks um, in particular about La Leche League um, and in its place in this debate and arguments over breastfeeding and the kind of social and political and cultural context of working mothers um, and sort of the ways that um, breastfeeding and ideas of what a mother ought to do um, coming from these various circles, work or stay at home, um, we're really coming into conflict. And so there's a really interesting um, story here about this intersection between feminist um, ideals and ideals of natural motherhood. Um, that's that's actually super interesting. Um, is there anything in particular you'd want to say to that before we move on? I think the main thing that I'd just like to touch on is because it sets up the next chapter is this, is that there is this emerging um, conflict between the sort of you know, older generation of breastfeeding advocates um, and sort of progenitors of natural motherhood ideology and sort of new feminist mothers um, who are attracted to breastfeeding and this idea of of the natural um, because it sort of seems very woman centric and, and has these kind of, you know, earth mother overtones to it, um, that appealed to people, um, in the 1970s. And yet it comes increasingly attached with this, uh, idea that breastfeeding should dictate gender division of labor. Um, and that, if you're going to sort of embrace breastfeeding and natural motherhood, then you need to sort of embrace it completely. Um, you can't sort of have mothers who work and are away from their infants for long stretches of time. Um, if you want breastfeeding to be successful and effective in the way that it's sort of been outlined. Um, and so you sort of have this increasing split, um, in the breastfeeding community and that sort of sets up, the next chapter, which um, talks about the breast pump. Yes, um, and the next chapter is fascinating. So this chapter, chapter six, looks at the rise of breast pump technology. And in the words of the book, it looks at the construction of breastfeeding as the embodiment of natural motherhood, um, as it was challenged by breast pump technology and the professionalization also of breastfeeding expertise. And among the many things that the chapter touches on um, is the rise of lactation consultants as a professional group, right? As a kind of um, uh, locus of this professionalization um, mm -hmm. that the book talks about. Now, the availability of pump technology, um, among other things, really uh, triggered a kind of interesting shift. And this is epistemologically interesting um, as well as being interesting in, in all kinds of social um, and cultural and political levels. The availability of this pump technology, as you show here, helped shift the focus from breastfeeding as a process to breast milk as a product. So can you talk about that? What were some of the most, um, for you, important implications of that shift? Um, and, and for you, what's most important about this availability of breast pump technology and its implications? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that, um, that breast pumps 
do, at least when they sort of become widely available and, and, and widely integrated into breastfeeding, which I would place in the, in the 1990s, really, maybe slightly earlier if you're talking about manual pumps. But um, it takes the focus off the process of breastfeeding and, as you said, turns it into a focus on breast milk. Um, and it does this without anyone really sort of paying attention or noticing um, in any sort of coherent way. So rather than breastfeeding being this, you know, dynamic process where you have an infant on, on a woman's breast um, and and it's about this sort of larger relationship and, and this back and forth communication that happens between the mother and the infant, which are all things that, you know, are, are advocated for and wrapped up in, in this natural motherhood vision of, of breastfeeding. And instead of having all of that, you have a machine um, extracting milk and putting it into a bottle and storing it for later or giving it to a caretaker, someone other than the mother, um, to feed the baby at, at some other time. Um, and the focus is now, you know, not on what is breastfeeding doing for the mother. Um, it's on how do we get breast milk into this baby? And I think that that is an incredibly important shift because when you're telling women how great breastfeeding is, um, for the most part, people are talking about that first scenario, right? Where you, where you have the mother and the infant connected and, and experiencing this relationship together. Um, and so once you sort of disembody the breast milk, um, and it becomes this widespread pro this widespread part of what we now call breastfeeding, um, you've really changed what you're talking about. You're really not talking about the same breastfeeding that women in the 1950s and 60s were talking about. And I think that's important because when we see exhortations today, and this kind of gets into the epilogue, um, from public health authorities, from pediatricians, et cetera, to women to breastfeed, they're not really actually talking about breastfeeding. They're talking about getting breast milk into a baby. Um, and they've kind of ignored the meaning and the work and the experience that goes into getting that milk into the baby. So let's actually move into the epilogue. Um, this is a kind of nice transition. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about maybe some of the consequences of that ignoring if you'd like, but, um, I'll kind of just set the stage first. Now the epilogue considers how the events that we've talked about, right? The events described in the book, all of this really careful historical contextualization and the narratives that emerge out of it have continued to shape the experiences of mothers with breastfeeding. And it suggests some ways of addressing the ongoing, in the words of the book, tensions surrounding arguments that mothers should go, quote, back to the breast. Now, this chapter or this epilogue, as I've already um, alluded to several times now, because I think it's really important, it emphasizes the importance, um, as I've said, of the rhetoric of choice 
in the discourse surrounding breastfeeding. It argues, and, and here I'm going to quote from the book, breastfeeding is not now, nor has it ever been, merely a matter of personal choice. And in continuing to cast it as such, from either a feminist or maternalist standpoint, leads only to bitter public rivalries and ineffective policymaking. So Jessica, can you speak to that? Um, just this argument um, around choice and this rhetoric and its implications. Sure. Well, I think one of the things that what we do when we talk about the choice to breast or bottle feed is we take all of the responsibility um, and we place it on individual mothers. So we take all of the responsibility for, you know, say the choice, say the choice is to breastfeed. Um, so we place all of the responsibility still ultimately on that individual mother for learning about breastfeeding um, and carrying it out in a system that is still not always set up um, to actually support that choice. Um, and so we still, you know, you still see today many examples of, of women who find themselves in situations that are not that different um, from the women in the 1950s who wanted to breastfeed and experienced failure. Um, and they don't experience it as a, as a societal failure or an institutional failure. Um, they, they experience it as a personal failure. Um, and the other thing that we do is that we sort of set up this, well, you have this choice to either be a breastfeeding mother or an, or a bottle feeding mother. Um, as though, there is a very sort of clear decision in every in every case, and as though those two things aren't often overlapping, um, and as though those are very concrete and discrete identities, and that choosing one or the other sort of subscribes you to a certain identity as a mother, um, and I think that that, as we've seen, uh, play out. In, in our culture has very negative consequences for people. And it sort of creates adversaries out of mothers um, when really I would prefer to sort of see people um, highlight some of the larger social and structural problems that are preventing women from really succeeding at being mothers in general. Great. Jessica, as we come to our conclusion, um, and we're almost at the end of our time, aside from this issue of the discourse of choice, are there any other um, kind of significant takeaway lessons of this study for you that you would like to mention as we move forward? I think one thing that I don't know if I really emphasize it in the book, but I certainly tried to put it in there, is this sort of longstanding debate that... Um, or I don't know if it's fair to call it a debate, but a, a sort of discussion in the history of science um, and medicine as to sort of what what happens when you when you when you have women doing some of the science and doing some of the medicine and doing some of the research. And I think that this book highlights the contributions um, that women researchers have made to something that has 
really had tremendous consequences um, for women themselves. Um, and so one of the things that I that I highlight in this book, at, I, at least I hope I do, is that, you know, we we might be um, quick to look at the work of people like um, psychologist, psychologist John Balby or, um, you know, Watson, um, people who produced knowledge that seemed very misogynistic at times, um, very sort of denigrated uh, mothers, and yet in the hands of female scientists and female researchers, um, they were actually able to sort of see the other side to the implications of that work and to sort of make, use that work to make arguments that supported women and supported Mothers, And so I think it's a sort of testament to the importance that women scientists have to play in the creation of this kind of knowledge. And that it does matter that women are involved. Thank you so much, Jessica. Um, now, there's there's a ton of stuff that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Right, The book is very, very rich, um, and there's no way um, we can be comprehensive in this medium, but certainly there's a lot we could have talked about that we didn't have time for. Is there anything in particular, aside from what we've already talked about, that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, there's, I mean, there's one sort of fun source slash anecdote that um, comes up in the chapter on environmentalism and feminism, which um, was just a, a, a neat find for me. And that was a transcript of a Phil Donahue show from the 1980s, I believe, um, in which the leaders of the La Leche League and the Boston Women's Book Collective um, were there sort of sparring with one another over um over this question of how do we make breastfeeding feminist and, and is, is that something that's desirable and is it possible? Um, and the audience was filled with La Leche League mothers who were there for a convention. And so um, you can imagine who sort of wins the day in that, in that interchange. Um, but it was just the perfect find for really showing that this wasn't just happening in theory, but that these two sort of perspectives, the second wave, you know, women's health movement um, and and the sort of older school uh, breastfeeding advocates were really kind of in, in conversation with one another and were really trying to um, figure out how to move forward. And I think that that's a tension that we continue to see um, in our debates about infant feeding today. It's, it's clearly not something that we've resolved. Um, but I do hope that I've been able to at least suggest some ways that we can reframe these debates, um, and make them a little less, um, antagonistic towards mothers. So now that the book is out, uh, what's next for you? What are you currently inspired by and what are you working on? Well, right now, um, probably the biggest thing going on is, um, so I mentioned some of the physicians who were breastfeeding supporters. Um, I've actually been kind of tracking them down some more um, and finding all of these really fascinating connections between um, the physicians who were supportive of breastfeeding in like the 1950s and 60s and these 
networks um, that were called Catholic Physicians Guilds. Um, and so these were organizations that started to emerge in the 1910s that were like these uh, fraternal uh, brotherhoods of Catholic physicians. Um, and it's kind of opened up this whole new vein of research. So I'm sort of looking now at what role these Catholic physicians guilds played in shaping women's health policies over the course of the 20th century. Well, best of luck with that research, Jessica, which also sounds fascinating. And thanks for taking time out of it to talk with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was really great. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very, very much for joining us this time, and we will see you next time.